Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, coming to you from San Diego. And today we'll be interviewing Professor Andrew Demchuk, who is uh, in rural Vermont and the author of a brand new book called Bowling for Communism, Urban Ingenuity at the End of East Germany, published Cornell University Press 2020. Uh, Welcome, Professor Demchuk, to our podcast today. Thank you very much. So uh, this is an interesting book which uh, comes at the intersection between architecture and urban history uh, and also German-German relations and a whole host of other things. A little bit about Professor Demschuk and his research and his many books. He's a prolific scholar. Uh, His research focuses on post-1945 German and Polish history. Andrew's first monograph, called The Lost German East, Forced Migration and the Politics of Memory, 1945 to 1970, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2012, and it examines how the political context of the early Cold War, millions of West Germans being expelled from the province of Silesia after World War II, came to recognize that their physical return was not possible. This first monograph, as well as the second book, was made possible by the Humboldt Foundation and by the German exchange, De AAD. The second monograph, called Demolition on Karl Marx Square, Cultural Barbarism and the People's State in 1968, was published by Oxford University Press in 20. 2017. Uh, And that book looks at how the 1968 demolition of Leipzig's medieval university church brought about an essential turning point in relations between communist authorities and the people they claimed to serve. Uh, Andrew has another book, a fourth fourth monograph, if you can imagine that, coming out called Three Cities After Hitler, Redemptive Reconstruction Across Cold War Borders. Uh, He'll talk about this one a little bit more to the end of the podcast. It will be published. It's now under contract by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and it looks at the politics of memory in urban reconstruction under three contrasting regime ideologies. So our focus today is on a bowling alley, bowling treff. Uh, and I wonder, Andrew, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, our audience, and, and how you came to be interested in the building of, of the bowling treff, the bowling alley in the city of Leipzig in East Germany. Thank you. Well, again, Stephen, thank you for this invitation to speak with you today. I think that talking about myself, the the best way to do that is to talk about where this book came from, which is itself um, a story that has paralleled uh, my intellectual trajectory for a very long time. I first visited Leipzig in 2005, just as a tourist, and was really struck by how how beautiful the city was becoming, but how you could still see all these signs of, uh, of, of urban decay, urban destruction. And of course, as a visitor, I had no idea what it was about. And then a huge opportunity came to me in 2007 when I was a fellow at the Dubnov Institute for Jewish Culture and History in Leipzig. Uh, it was um, an exchange that the University of Illinois, where I did my PhD, used to have with the Dubnov Institute. And it was really a collaboration between the director there, Don Diener, and Mati Bunzel, who was one of my great um, advocates and mentors at Illinois. And there I was in Leipzig, so fascinated by the surrounding environments, doing research for an article on former 
Jewish residents, uh, Holocaust survivors who had lived in Breslau, uh, which had been a city in Germany before 1945 and is now Wrocław in Poland. So I'm immersed in reading about Jews in Silesia and Silesia and expulsion and Holocaust. And yet during the day, I'd be walking around in Leipzig and saying, this is a really neat place. And I, and I had this sort of pipe dream, really, that, well, someday, if it should so happen to be that I actually do this dissertation on forced migration of Germans after World War II, and I, and I, I publish it, and I actually have a job somewhere, I've got to bring in Leipzig in a future project. And while I was getting ready for my dissertation defense in 2009, I, I decided, you know, I'm doing all this reading and, and preparation for my dissertation project, and my brain needed an outlet into something else. So I started to read about architecture. I started to read about urban planning. Uh, and I was already fascinated with urban space after forced migration, again, looking at, at Breslau, Wrocław, and Silesia. And I started to realize that Wrocław and Leipzig uh, and, and some of the cities in former West Germany all had a lot in common in terms of their architecture. And that was the genesis for a gigantic project on comparative urban planning and architecture in three cities uh, that had been part of Germany before World War II, but were rebuilt by three different states. And that project is the ongoing work of this fourth book that I'm going to talk about at the end of of, of our discussion today. I had to bring it in now because that huge project became the basis for um, the Humboldt Foundation Fellowship that gave me 17 months to do research in Leipzig as a fellow at the GWZO, the Humanities Center for East Central Europe. Uh, and, um, and in the midst of trips to West, former West Germany, to Poland and such, Leipzig as my home base afforded me the chance to dig in really deep into a lot of other material that inspired other projects. And, um, and so that, I suppose, is how you know, the table was set for doing work on, on this uh, project. A few key moments then in the years that followed, you know, because you, you might say looking at this book, um, you know, this is a book about 1989. It's a book about Leipzig. When we think about Leipzig, it's like if you're not going to talk about the Battle of Nations in 1813, you're talking about 1989, right? But strangely enough, 1989, uh, doing a book on Leipzig in 1989 came to me extremely late in doing the research for this because it was parallel to so many things. Maybe the earliest moment where I started to really ponder this late communist uh, context was in 2013 doing research for the first time at the um, former Planning Institute of East Germany in Erkner by Berlin when I discovered all the files on this 1988 architectural competition that is featured in my third chapter of this book. And I said, you know, I, I see all these postmodern looking designs, these incredibly ambitious architectural plans for an urban center in Leipzig that could vie with or even exceed anything that was happening in the West at the time. And I said, that was East German architecture, you know, and that was that was a moment is like, well, this is, of course, has nothing much to do with more than a footnote in my Three Cities project. Um, you know, I'll just footnote it all for something maybe someday, but I never thought it would lead to a book like this. But that was like an early moment among many. Yeah. And, and I want to I pursue that a lot because I, I spent some time in Leipzig at the Institute for Landeskunde. And my, my experience of Leipzig was very, very different because I was not, I wasn't around the university so much, um, but I had gone around the city. And, and I remember seeing this particular building and being 
fascinated by its decay. It, it, it looked so dilapidated. And I thought, well, this must be part of German cultural heritage too. What, what has happened here? Have they just neglected everything in favor of a, a prestige or um, churches? So, I mean, I get the feeling that you chased a story. Could you tell? Could you tell us about how how you pursued this, like in the larger context of, of decay or dilapidation, if if that's the correct way of understanding Leipzig in the seventies and eighties? Yeah, and that is absolutely the the best way, I think, in many ways, to understand the sad state of this city uh, at that time. Chasing this story is a good way of putting it because. It it was a story that came together the more the sources landed in, in front of me, and also the oral history, uh, so much of it informal, started to tell me, you know, if somebody doesn't sit down and write this story, now it's going to go away, right? Because um, I, I didn't realize it when I was starting uh, this project, but this is also in its own way, it's in, in, in a small way, a work of economic history, looking at the black market. Uh, and there has been v- almost nothing, to my amazement, done on the black market, on the so-called second economy uh, in the former East Bloc since the 80s. I've talked to economic historian friends about it, and you know they were also flummoxed. I would say this book is in some ways a plea to colleagues, some of them just cultural historians like me, Put on put on your uh, economic history hat, and 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 go into the into the field and talk to people in Romania, in Poland, in all of these former East Bloc states right now, because this is not stuff you're going to find uh, in the archives. Right, and and and, and, and you've got that combination um, of both oral interviews and really deep archival research. Um, very, very strong, I, I would say, Kvelin critique in the book. Could you could you talk about um, how you decided to organize the book, what your chapters um, entail? Absolutely. And I will I will start by saying as well, the idea that this was going to be a book only really came to me in late 2017, uh, after after many many years of doing research on this um, sort of informally. Um, I had thought I was doing some research for this big three cities book. Then I was thinking maybe I'd write some articles, and it was in at the German Studies Association meeting in 2017 when I met Brian Ladd who has uh, done um, some work on urban decay in late uh, communism in East Germany, that I realized in conversation with him and thinking about what I'd actually found, that it's crazy, but this needs to be a book, I said. This really does need to be a book. And I need to do even more reading and more talking to people to make it into a book. So that was, that was sort of a, a huge moment where I started to think in terms of chapters instead of articles and how it would all tie together. And another big moment in terms of the layout of the book came in November of 2018 when American University funded this, um, what we call as a book incubator workshop, where you can bring in experts in the field to talk with you in a wor- and workshop the manuscript. And, the, and thanks to those colleagues, uh, I was able to also reformulate how this thing would come together. So the ultimate structure, very much, we begin with this documentary, the first free documentary that came out in East Germany overall, that was called Ist Leipzig noch zu retten? Can Leipzig still be saved? And that really um, damning title, can the city even be saved? 
accompanied all of this footage of local residents really pleading with the uh, camera person, you know, how, how, how can we save our urban environment, which is so decayed, you know, the, the, the buildings are literally falling down. And it, it was this indictment about really poor urban planning, poor historic preservation. And this question, where did this come to come from? How did this evolve? You know, it's funny looking back. I keep a journal and looking back, you know, I, I, I was thinking, you know, actually, in conversation with people like um, local historian named Thomas Topfstedt, with the former chief architect of Leipzig in the 1980s, Dietmar Fischer, in these conversations, I came to realize so profoundly a theme that evolved for me also in conversation with my dear colleague Jeffrey Diefendorf from his book In the Wake of War, and that is that the local can tell us so much more sometimes than top-down structures. Of course, you go to Berlin and do work in the Bundesarchiv, and you have to understand the top-down structures and how they function. But to ask this question, can Leipzig still be saved? You need to understand what local actors are doing and also local political actors. And it was not my intention going into this to, to you know, redeem local communists, you know, local communist leaders. But you know, I came to realize that the local party structure and its interaction with the center changed also decisively through the 70s and 80s. My second book, uh, Demolition on Karl Marx Square, is, is really, um, frankly, quite unkind in how it portrays the local officials. Because at that time, you know, the head of the local district, the Bezirk, he was, a, he was the right-hand man of Walter Ulbricht, <clears throat> the president uh, there of the Politburo in, in uh, East Berlin. And the local party machinery was in lockstep with the center. By the 70s and 80s, your local administration is just trying basically to attain or achieve something in spite of mismanagement coming from the center. You know, there was uh, the uh, you know, euphemism, the local districts are building Berlin. In reality, what this meant was local, local materials, local architects, local, local everything was flooding into Berlin. And it's why everything looked terrible in your district cities like Leipzig because it was all going to Berlin, and everything looked even worse in a county seat like Grimma or, uh, you know, uh, you know Frankfurt-Oder, because uh, so much stuff from those places was flowing into the, into the district head. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. And, and I want to ask you some questions about the um, local el- elites, I would say the party people up through the 80s, um, including at the district level, but also the mayors. I mean, obviously, you know, in your earlier book, you you talk about the destruction of the church in 1968. And I, I think that memory for Leipzigers has to be very significant, um, you know, and I would say politically to people eventually who become members or at least vote for officials in, in CDU and CSU. Um, and, you know, I mean, Leipzig is such a mixed history, has such a mixed history politically that close races now between the the SPD and the CDU. It's also one of the incubators in Saxony for Alternative for Deutschland, which we can get to. But um, I'm thinking about some of the roles of of local politicians. So, you know, I mean, do you think and, and what is your evidence for this association of local politicians with decay? Who who had who had that? What, could it be blamed on the Leipzig mayors, or was it at the district level, or or at, how do you tease that out through the through mm-hmm. your chapter? That's a great question. And here, 
as you as you just I think inferred. Some of it you get from deep reading in Berlin, in the district archive, in the city archive, in smaller archives. Um, but some of it you're only going to get out of lots of interviews with lots of people, uh, some of whom blame each other, right? Um, and um, <clears throat> and also through um, through some footage and testimonies from the time. What I would say is when you're talking about officials, you have to talk about officials in city government, in urban planning, in preservation, like at, at all these different levels. And as a basis for talking about that, the, the lack of resources needs to be clear. The goal in urban planning was mass production of housing to solve the housing question by 1990. And Horst Ziegel, who has your last name, uh, who was the young and dynamic urban planner in Leipzig from 1968 uh, through 1985, he produced that uh, for the party out of firm belief that modernist cities of tomorrow with large block buildings, right, um, would generate um, a better society. Grunau in Leipzig is the second largest uh, Plattenbau prefab apartment complex in East, former East Germany outside of you know, Mazan in Berlin. So the money, the resources, it was flowing into this. And if you look at the 1970 urban plan in Leipzig, they were going to tear down almost the entire city, put in giant highways, in essence, due to Leipzig, some of what was going on in Western cities at the time, but but tied in with this modernist idea, tied in with this solving the housing problem through mass production. And so you have the Baukombinat, the, the local building collective, which is producing these prefab cement buildings and giant factories. And... So many things that go into making a city multidimensional, like having this historic core, started to die, right? Your handworker tradition, uh, through readings in lots of archives and such, the handworker tradition just was, was withering away. Collectivizing handworkers is like trying to herd cats, you know? It just, it just doesn't work. It's got to be a guild and you pass it down, etc. So your, your handworker tradition is dying out even more rapidly than in, in, in the West. Um, your, uh, which is interesting because that was not the case in a place like Poland, uh, too. This is a local East Germany uh, phenomenon. You have um, very weak preservation laws that are created at the same time that money is withdrawn for preservation, right? And this word of um, complex uh, reconstruction, reconstruction, implied that you would gut a building so completely there'd be almost nothing left of its historical content by the time you were done. And so this is the way they're building in a generation that is then shifting in the 70s and 80s. And a big moment for me came, it's, it's, it's February 2015, I'm immersed in doing reading for all kinds of other things, and I had the opportunity through some contacts to meet Dietmar Fischer, the last chief architect of communist Leipzig. And I went, he, he's a successful local architect since 1989. Um, so he's still got his architectural office. His, his uh, son is an architect too, right? He doesn't like to talk about the past, which is often a great thing too, if you're doing oral history. Talk to the people who don't want to talk, right? Um, not the ones who have that canned narrative. And we sat in his office <clears throat> and he started to relate to me 
um, what it was to be a chief architect at the end of communism, how few resources you had, how there was all this centralized planning. And as you can see uh, over the course of my book too, his story would, 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 would shift. One minute he'd say, oh, we, everything was a front. We never thought we could achieve anything. It was all impossible because that's how he's coped with the fact that he was sort of kicked out of office after 1989, how, 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 how he took the blame for so much that went wrong. But then sometimes he would he, either be this little sparkle in his eye and he's, he's an old style architect. So he's drawing on paper the whole time he's talking to me, you know? Um, and he, and, and he says, you know, he said, um, we tried, there were, there were, there were, there were, there were real attempts to bind history, bind historical inspiration to modern planning. And that as testimony, then he started to pull out these editions of a journal called Leipziger Blätter. It was a cultural paper that started in the 1980s in Leipzig that is an amazing primary source for what people are actually talking about at the time. And I, I exhausted that source thereafter, just took so many pictures of pages of Leipziger Blätter. And his testimonies in there are continuous with his dissertation from the Technical University uh, in um, in, in Berlin, that, and, and you find this, this, this story of, we can do it. We can fuse history to Plattenbau, to prefab architecture. We can restore character to cities. We can combine historic preservation. And he tried it then in these examples that I illustrate uh, in a chapter I call Urban Ingenuity in the System, the second chapter. The first chapter kind of lays out how terrible and awful everything is and how people are nonetheless showing this plucky resolve to try to survive. The second chapter, looking at how they're really trying in the system, and then this 1988 architectural competition. 1988, they project a, a, a better future for the urban center of Leipzig as a, as a g- trade fair city of global standing. And you and you you call it a castle in the air, maybe right? This this imagination, but it shows how little anyone on the ground and also in office is expecting 1989, right? And um, and then we get to the bowling alley in chapter four and, and black and black market and stuff, and then finally 1989 revolution. But but the fact that. I'm looking at this, like, how are local politicians working around the centralized system to build something? How are local people working around the system and writing all these complaints, all these complaints about how terrible things are and how they're trying to get materials and then how people are actually doing it behind the scenes? This this culture of civic, local, and then centralized um, officialdom became sort of the basis then for me to suddenly ask myself by, you know, 2017, as I'm in the midst of all this, well, wow, this is Leipzig. This is Leipzig right before 1989. What does this tell us about that revolution? And just as one last factor, there's this archive called Archiv Bürgerbewegung, Archive of Civic Initiative, that I discovered in August 2014. I met the director who had done an exhibition on the demolition of Leipzig's University Church, which was my previous book project. But I said to myself when I was there, this is a treasure trove if somebody ever wanted to do late communism in 1989, because it's full of files, local people just gave them of materials having to do with urban decay and how they're repairing apartments and complaints they gave to the state and photographs they took. So that it told me that archive and talking to people, this project is not only possible, you're in a unique position because you know Leipzig and you know these people and so many of them are still alive. You you can you can you are in a unique position to do this.
Yeah. And I, I mean, I love your coverage, Andrew, about this local civic pride um, in Saxony, especially, but with the relationship between um, Leipzig and Dresden and Berlin. I want to ask a question about the bowling treff itself. Um, so when I think of famous bowling alleys, I think of Richard Nixon and the White House bowling alley at like the 1960s, 1969, I think it was. Um and I was trying to trying to think of these architectures and their backgrounds because, I, I mean, I know the name Winfried Vin, Vin, Vin Sigolite, right? I mean, from the Gewandhaus, he he was one of the architects of the third Gewandhaus when it was restored, and this is of course one of the oldest opera houses in the world, um, you know, like back to the 1740s, and and I was thinking, well you know, okay, what would have made these architects or these art historians who were probably um, displaced to begin with in the late 30s and 40s into Saxony or into Leipzig, what what would make them turn from high modernism and planning toward a building with pink columns, right? Which is, you know, such a remarkable gem considering, considering how little East German postmodernism was there. I mean, there are other bowling alleys, you know, in Dortmund or in Hamburg. I think there's one in Dresden. But this one, this one strikes me as as unique, um, not in a nationalist sense, but in a kind of aesthetic and creative sense. So I'm wondering if you could if you could introduce these characters like Horst Siegel that you mentioned or Thomas Topstedt, um, people who are academics, Winifred Siegelite, I think is still alive, right? I mean, could you tell our could you tell our listeners Andreas Kalitinsky, you know, Arnold Bartetsky, some of these people, who who were they and, and how did they inspire you with this project? Well let, let me give you a short version to this question, how did this thing come to be, really quick, by introducing you to Winfried Schigolait. So Winfried Schigolait is not a member of the SED party, of the Socialist Unity Party, but almost everybody else who's in high levels in urban planning in Leipzig was. <clears throat> and this bowling alley was the climax of a process of building um, illegal structures uh, by local officials that I describe in my book. Um, and, and, and what happened was Shigalite shows up at the office of the chief architect. The chief architect at the time, Dietmar Fischer, who's like in his 30s, incredibly young, it tells young Winfried Shigalite, um, basically, you know, you can build whatever you want. Mm, wow. And he's, and he's like, that ne- you know, he's like, no, that never happens. They can't be serious. That, you know, <laughs> everything has to, but, but it's, you know, why not? And, and there's this implication that I never found confirmed in the archives that if things had gone down, if the party authorities in Berlin had really chastised the office of the chief architect for building this thing without central permission, because you couldn't build anything without central permission, and central permission is basically never granted, right? Um, if things had gone down, they could have said, "Well, Shigolite planned it, and he's not a member of the party, right?" I mean, there is that. There's that Im- implication. Shigolite, though, had had gained renown with the second, with a third Gewandhaus. The third Gewandhaus was Leipzig is unique in that it has the only new opera house in East Germany. It was built in 1960, completed in 1960, and across the square, the only new concert hall. 
uh, in East Germany, the Gewandhaus, the third Gewandhaus. Uh, the Opera House was a huge prestige project under late Stalinism. The Gewandhaus came into be for considerable reasons because Kurt Mazur, who was a world-class conductor of the Gewandhaus Orchestra, told Eric Honecker in a letter, I'm, you know, basically, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quitting if you don't do this. Um, you know, the Gewandhaus was performing in the Congress Hall uh, next to the zoo, and you could hear lions roaring and elephants, you know, tooting. <laughs> in a, in a, in, and the hall has miserable acoustics, too. Yeah, I've heard I, I, I remember people telling me the stories. Yeah, sorry. It still does. They just restored it, and it still has terrible acoustics. You, you know, it's just awful. So... This the Gewandhaus goes up, and there's a rumor. There's a there's a there's sort of this um, um, myth that you hear in a documentary that I'd like to talk about briefly too about the the bowling treff. A myth that the bowling treff was built using materials illegally withheld from the Gewandhaus because so much stuff in the bowling treff, like the oak parquet floors, the pink pillars, the marble everywhere, looks like stuff from the third Gewandhaus, right? The, the, the truth that I found is people made connections. You knew somebody at the marble quarry. You knew somebody at this particular um, glass production place. And all resources are mustered for this bowling treff because your local authorities really believe in it as their illegal project. And so they sort of cash in these informal connections they've made through the third Gewandhaus to build the bowling treff. But the mystique surrounding it is really exposed when you hear this, like, you know, oh my gosh, they were stealing things from a state project to build this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so how did you, I mean, how did you pursue this? You mentioned Shigolite, but through others like um, Thomas Topstedt and, and Bartetsky, are they are they art historians and, and architecture historians? And were, were they involved with the, with the socialist party? I mean, they were part of Harnecker's party and working around things as well. Right. Or so what, Thomas what Topstedt was a young art historian in Leipzig who wrote an amazing book in 1987, in many ways, chastising some of the lack of imagination for high modernist architecture across the Republic. And he had a student following and was very active in 1989 in this movement to build a better city. So as an interview partner and as an author, he really clued me and also to the bowling treff in the first place, you know, in November 2014, when I was giving a paper at a conference about the demolition of the university church in Berlin, uh, he confronted me and said, you know, you need to read about this bowling treff. There isn't much on it, but I can clue you into a few very small run things that, that, you know, that sort of gave me the tip of the iceberg. And that's when I started looking at archives and stuff. Bartetsky came to Leipzig to work at this uh, humanities center for East Central Europe after the fall of communism, but is so involved locally, he wrote the book um, Die Gerettete Stadt, The Saved City, that looks at 1990s Leipzig. And I would say as much as my demolition on Karl Marx Square book could be said to be a prequel to this book, uh, Bowling for Communism, Die Gerettete Stadt, the the salvaged city, could be um, sort of a sequel. If you want to know what really happens next after my epilogue, that really gets into capitalist mechanisms and how people are, are, you know, surviving, really, in in the capitalist um, uh, city of Leipzig. I would say that some of the characters who really helped me with this book are people that you 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 re- that were really obscure to me at first, but that were super important. And I'd like to name two names: Uta Nickel and Liesel Schön. Uta Nickel was in charge of finance at the Bezirk, at the district level. 
And Liesl Schoen was in charge of finance at the state level. And there was a gender aspect here. You let women run the money and the men do the creative planning, right? And surely, um, you know, it, it's like, you know, in, in so many, like, I don't know, parochial clubs, right? Who's, who's the secretary and who's the treasurer? They tend to be women, right? And, and yet what happened because of this gendering of urban um, administration in a, in a scarcity culture is that Uta Nickel and Liesl Schoen were these incredibly gifted administrative um, whizzes, really, who held the purse strings and helped to determine how much money there was to do what people wanted to do in certain areas that they chose. And Uta Nickel, who I, I, it was funny, I, I met her through um, another, another person I knew actually from Breslau, from my research there. She, she's written all these wonderful books about her youth in Breslau, but she was in charge, uh, Ursula Vaga, of the um, building kombinat um, structure in Leipzig. You know, she made a career for herself in Leipzig as an expelli from Breslau. And she gave me her maiden name and told me to use that to get in touch with Uta Nickel, whom I telephoned. Uta Nickel said that she was willing to maybe see me, like nobody's ever interviewed her before. Um, wow, really? And it was like, <laughs> yes, oh yes, and she was, she was imperious, I must say. But ultimately forthcoming in this... Um, in this, you know, very intense interview in which at the end of it, when she saw that I wasn't trying to like defame her for her communist, you know, past or anything else, I'm just trying to understand how finance and architecture function. She was, she was very suddenly quite happy to explain like how she helped to make funds appear for the bowling trip. She referenced certain archival materials I then found. She get referenced certain reports and she referenced Liesl Schoen, who was in an in a retirement home south of Leipzig. I bicycled down there and she she's funny. She's in charge of managing all the old people's taxes for them. She's still her she like like Uta Nickel. She's sharp as a tack, even though she's an octogenarian in this uh, old home. And she had all the documentation from her time in the party still with her. She just had it in her room there in the old home and gave me gave it to me you know, like to, to make copies. Uh, along with some little book pamphlets and booklets about how finance operated. So there's this, this, this superstructure of illegal funding, really, where they'd say, you know, we like athletic facilities, we like parks, we want the local people to have um, physical space where they can, um, you know, yeah, have that, right? And we like the guy who is in charge of um, local parks and recreation, right? And, and, and he was creative in mustering uh, funding to, to, you know, through them then to make illegal swimming pools, um, illegal uh, restaurants that I talk about, right? Little, little cafes, so many things built off the books that then culminate with this, with this bowling truff, you know? And so it's like, it's like talking almost like about a, a, a rock band or something, right? Yeah, no, they I, have all their, their early concerts. Yeah. And then this is like the big moment when they come on the global stage and produce right. their big thing. And the cast of characters from all these backgrounds, whether it's an architect like Shigolite, a finance person, person like, uh, like Uta Nickel, right? Or your chief architect, Deepmar Fisher, who's been trying to create a better city. They all come together and they give their, their consent, their energy, and their talent. And then there's the crucial problem. How are you going to build the thing? How are you going to get labor? How are you going to get people? And that's where you bring in um, 
these after hours workers, people who are willing to work sort of um, for, for additional pay off the books from what they do in their day jobs, and they bring in materials and they bring in uh, tools from those other jobs. And then you have local people who work for free, um, you know, 40,000 hours of free labor by all these thousands of local young people who basically built, build the thing. And that reconstructing that story took, I did that through interviews, a little bit of archives, and then materials that have been put together for this documentary film on the bowling treff in 2015 by Adrian Bayer and, um, Adrian Dorschner and Thomas Bayer, who's, you know, I hope it's supposed to be a DVD soon, but this analysis of sort of the story of, of the bowling treff sort of through interviews, access to and permissions for all those interviews, then uh, sort of, they did a lot of legwork I could build on and follow up with people with my own specific questions. Yeah. And, and actually I saw the documentary and it's on YouTube. So um, it's, oh, great. it's completely accessible and it was put there in 2018. Really interesting with, with a lot of the people um, you interviewed, plus I think an Italian um, architect mm-hmm. and, and, and Denise Brown, um, yeah. who's, who's amazing. Um, and Paul, Paolo Portoghese, they brought him in because he is a, one of the global like gurus of postmodernism and the point of bringing him in and a point that I'd like to make to tie in with your earlier question. These architects knew about postmodern theory. They wanted to create buildings in the cutting edge of of early postmodernism, like postmodernism back when it wasn't like mass produced, but actually had a soul to it, right? In, in a way, like 1970s and 80s postmodernism can be really interesting. And this intellectual postmodernism bringing in, you know, citations in wacky ways to build this sort of these sort of colorful uh, infusions of the past and future, uh, this playful style came to Winfried Schigolite because he's reading Paolo Portuguese. He's reading mm-hmm. about what they're building in the West. So let's let's talk about Leipzig in 1989 and the peaceful revolution and the the lifespan of this bowling alley, which is also a, a restaurant and a cafe and a fitness complex, and, and it lasts, you know, right until 1997. So what what is the connection to the peaceful revolution in Leipzig in 1989? Now, you, you've covered through the archives all the petitions, all the complaints, all the, the sort of black market, maybe even a kind of proto-privatized economy for construction work. I mean, how... How, if at all, do you draw the connection, and this is a larger question, between this people's participatory democracy and this people's bowling alley? What, what's the story there? What's the conjunction? Well, you know, we have our preconceptions when we're going into a project like this. And I had done a lot of work in the Stasi archive for my previous book and found all this stuff about resistance and um, and surveillance, you know, surrounding the demolition of the university church in 1968. And so I just had this preconception, I'll go back to the Stasi archive, I'm going to have to spend months doing research like I did before, I thought it was going to take up the whole summer. And uh, my contact at the Stasi archive put together stuff from the bowling treff. And it was like just a couple little folders. And he said, I'm sorry. He said, there's just not much there. And through interviews and stuff, then follow up. I was like, yeah, the, the bowling treff had absolutely nothing to do with the marches in 1989. It had absolutely nothing to do with overturning the pre-existing system, right? Uh, it was, if anything, a sign of 
working with the system, right? Because people are helping their local officials build the thing. And so I, you know, first I was kind of dejected. I'm like, oh gosh, I didn't find what I was looking for. But then I looked through the, what I did find and it told me a story that was far more interesting and far more, I think, authentic to this story of what I call urban ingenuity in late communist uh, Leipzig. And that is the fact that the, the bowling treff was an object of desire for what uh, Alexei Yurchak, uh, in his wonderful book, Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More in the Soviet context, what he calls the imaginary West. In Leipzig, you can get Western TV. People are watching Western TV all the time. And this imaginary West, the West is so much better in your imagination than it really is, right? And, you know, when you think about a bowling alley, you mentioned Richard Nixon, you know, bowling alleys in the West. I mean, you know, I went bowling with my grandma, you know, it tended to be some kind of a box, <laughs> a very boring building. And, right. you, and it kind of, you know, smells like beer and, and pizza and you, you bowl, right? And the, sh- and and the shoes. Oh, and, <laughs> the, the, and shoes. the shoes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and, and that everyone else has been in. And, 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 and they're kind of dirty and, you know, whatever. But bowling in the East German mindset of the 1970s already was like this amazing thing they do in the West that we want to have in the East, right? And in, in Germany, you have this tradition of, of Kegel, which is kind of like bowling, but not really. That's totally not cool. Bowling is an American <laughs> Western thing, and we want to have that for ourselves. And this imagining of what I call the People's Bowling Palace, right? This this cathedral style bowling treff, as it was, such a unique architectural icon. This is a sign that you know we are going to really create the West better than it better than it ever was, and enjoy it ourselves. We can enter this sort of technicolor, um, fine palace of the people out of our decrepit, decaying, gray, miserable city where we go home to our apartments and we, we, that we have pigeons living in the roofs that I didn't realize until I did this book that pigeons carry ticks and people were suffering from rashes from pigeon ticks, right? I mean, this miserable living condition. You go to the bowling alley and you're a king, you're a prince, you're, you're, you're in the West, right? And so what I found in the archive, in the, in the Stasi archive, is this very detailed story, numerous stories of people in the bowling alley who worked there, who became so desperate to be in the West that they had successful escape attempts to the mm-hmm. West. And that's and the, that's what, the Stasi story, right? There was a, sm- a small Stasi involvement, right? Or isn't there? Exactly. And yeah. the Stasi actually infiltrated the wait staff at the uh, bowling treff. And it went from having the best service in Leipzig to the worst. Because all the best cooks, all the best waiters, they were they either made it to the West or they left. You know? <laughs> and were sent elsewhere. And they bring in these people who are like totally faithful to the party who can't, you know, cook worth, worth, worth anything, right? Yeah. Uh, and that happens in just the two years, only two years of existence that the bowling treff had um, between its completion in 1987 and the 1989 revolution. Uh, and so the fact that that this bowling treff becomes an object of desire for the West illustrates how even though people are building it, some of the p- same people who are helping to build it and are so faithful to the party that they get these plush jobs at the bowling treff, that they are the ones that are fleeing to the West, tells us something about how the, const- the very construction of the bowling treff was the creation of an object of desire and an indication of this latent discontent, right? <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I like how you bring in the second economy story. So the work of Gregory Grossman and, and mm-hmm. the so-called Shabashniki, um, who were freelancers and construction workers. So what happens to them in the 90s, right? Because 
In Leipzig and in Dresden and really in Saxony, you have a, a massive depopulation after the uh, after the Auseinandersetzung, after unification, right? And you know, so the population drops to like four hundred thousand or four hundred thirty thousand, and and people are moving out, and others are moving in, and now now of course Leipzig um, in the two thousand teens, going on the two thousand twenties, is um, very multicultural to say the least. I mean, you, you've got Iraqis and Syrians and people from the former Soviet Union and Poles and so on and so forth, and Yet the building the building stands um, decrepit, and, and Leipzig is one of the boom economies among the cities. So can you can you talk about the transformation? I mean, I would say first from the '90s, and then kind of like in the after story, and, and how you decided to narrate this. Yeah, uh, so I'll tell you about the '90s, then I'll give you a biography, and then we'll talk about the building. The '90s, as I talk about in my epilogue, are, are framed as actually a period with a lot of continuities with what came before. As you say, some of the same people are around. Um, Uta Nickel, who I mentioned before, the, the district finance head, she actually briefly was head of all finances in East Germany. Uh, and then she quit. She went back to Leipzig and basically became one of the most successful capitalist planners in, East, in former East Germany. She successfully converted herself over to um, rebuilding Leipzig with capitalist means by hook or crook, I must also add, although I don't think she'd oh, mind that. But part, well, and, and, <laughs> um, that, and that, that's a perfect sort of um, parallel to Berlin in the 90s, right? Exactly. If you're talented as an official uh, with the second economy, or even locally, if you had this verve, this, this sort of, um, you know, Eigenzin, as they've called it, you can survive. If you're used to like sending petitions to the government and expecting the government to take care of you, you're kind of lost, right? Um, so to give you a, a, a biography, Matthias Wolf, who, who I feature in my work uh, because he renovates an apartment. Interesting story. I'm doing work in the archive of civic initiatives that Archiv Bewegung, And I mentioned to the archivist, oh gosh, I, wouldn't I love to get access to some of the stories of individuals who renovate their apartments through the second economy? Like, oh, we'll just go talk to Matthias Wolf. He's downstairs in the, you know, office of, uh, you know, a local civic initiative for ecological stuff, you know? Like, oh, okay. So I go down. Turns out not just Matthias Wolf, but his secretary. Uh, they both actually renovated their apartments. And it's interesting. So Matthias Wolf, he, uh, unlike squatters who are also all over the place, uh, and, and the line between squatters and people who just renovate apartments legally, the, the line is very thin and wasn't really seen. If you're squatting, it wasn't even seen as a, as, a, as a big deal, to be honest. By stark contrast within West Germany, like even Frankfurt in West End, if you're squatting, they're going to send the police after you and evict you and, you know, fire hoses and dogs. You know, uh, squatting in East Germany, like, you, you you know, the Stasi don't really care that much. Um, you know, they, they'll just kind of let you do it. And it's almost an unofficial way in which apartments are getting renovated, you know, that young people are, are, are squatting in the same building with old people and steal roofing tiles from a decaying building across the street to fix the roof on your building, right? I mean, scaling it with mountain climbing equipment. That happened all the time because the state isn't going to take care of you. Matthias Wolf renovates his apartment, um, you, you know, again, using informal connections, um, know-how himself. He learned to do electrical things himself. He learned to do plumbing himself, right? You do it yourself. You get the materials yourself and whatever surplus you have. You know, his secretary had some extra bath tiles. You hold on to them either for future renovation or to barter with someone for something else, right? Communism ends and all of a sudden, 
capitalism comes in and the town is getting renovated and he's very uh, successful as a, as a, you know, because he's so used to doing things for himself and manages to get a better apartment and the apartment that he'd renovated gets torn down, you know, mm. I mean, and that happened all over the city that these, right. these partially renovated buildings get torn down. You can still imagine what it looked like if you go on the Northeast side of Leipzig, there's still areas that are these sort of Gründerzeit late 19th, early 20th century sort of um, historicist apartment uh, rows that have not been renovated, that are still in, in pretty bad shape. But this um, demolition craze of apartment buildings like that in the 70s and 80s didn't end in the 90s. Uh, it's, it's only a steady process where these are sort of given new value and certain areas, first the Waldstrassenviertel um, right in the 90s, and then late 90s, the Südvorstadt, some of these areas then start to get renovated and become the desirable areas in contrast to the Plattenbau areas like Brunau that, that start, to empty, um, start to empty out. The bowling treff itself only lasted for 10 years. 1987 it opened, has two years of communism. Capitalist um, uh, developers didn't know what to do with it. You know, Shigolite, the architect, threw up his hands when he went in under capitalism and saw they'd put in like fake ivy in a kitschy cafe and stuff. Like, what are they doing to my place? It's his, ba- it it's his baby. And, and It's his baby and they're yeah. running it into the ground, you know. Um, and and so um, 1997, it closed and it's been closed ever since. Yeah, I heard a rumor, actually, Andrew, that it there might be a reopening through the council. They're trying to do something with the Natural History Museum. I don't I don't know if you've heard about that that's breaking news it's happening that is oh, breaking news that it wow. is happening then i'm and, right you know yeah you know it's funny so this um this book uh you know also came into being and, and uh, we'll, we'll move to your takeaway points now since we're winding down a little bit so yeah this this can't... book was a deeply personal book in that i i discovered the bowling treff on a walk in town with my with my my wife and partner rebecca and you know, people have a, you know, sort of a, a nesting instinct when they're about to have their, their first child. My nesting instinct was to write a book, you know, I just kept writing and writing because I knew the countdown was coming until the baby came, you know, as I just kept writing and writing and writing this book in summer of 2018. Now, when I think of a natural history museum in the old bowling, of course, I want the old bowling truff to be a bowling alley again. But if they can't do that, a natural history museum that I can take my son to someday, and we can look at like aquariums and dinosaurs and these subterranean areas that used to be a power station, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a really interesting uh, future that I never would have imagined. I'm very glad it's going to be saved uh, for some purpose and that people will again be able to really for the first time for most people in their lives, by the time the thing opens, you know, figure it shut in 1997, you know, my students would have all, none of my students would have been alive when this thing shut down. You'd be able to go in and experience this cutting edge postmodern structure restored the way that it had it had been and then underground a natural history museum yeah that would be wonderful i mean i i worked at the frankfurt airport for a while doing research in their archive they had an underground museum as well or an underground archive that turned into a museum hmm. but you know i mean this is a subterranean story it, it needs to be brought to the light of day and I, I think you've, you've done marvels um, with this really fascinating book at, at bringing, bringing this to light. So I, I want to ask just a final question of you um, as a German historian, because I, I don't get a, a chance to interview a lot of bona fide German historians in my, in, in my interviews for New Books Network. 
What do you think this tells us about the East German state and about state and society relations ultimately? And where do you see, let's say, future research and maybe um, future books that you could recommend on the topic? Well, I'd say a few things. First, you cannot really understand civic state relations without going to the local level. And this kind of research needs to be happening now because you can still do oral history. Um, looking at things like the second economy, looking at things like actual civic life um, under communism, you're just not going to find everything in archives. And the petitions people wrote to the state, the Eingaben, they also will only take you so far. Uh, these these interviews, um, informal archives, like this archive of citizen initiatives, you're only going to find that through lots and lots and lots of time on the local level, meeting people and getting your 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 ear to the ground. You cannot understand the local unless you understand what's happening at the state level. You have to understand the state mechanisms, the party mechanisms, and the way things interacted at the state level vis-a-vis the local. And then you have to understand things in a transnational global context. You can't understand, for instance, the bowling trough without understanding the international architectural influences and relationships uh, that are that are inspiring um, local architects and planners. Uh, architecture, planning, preservation, it was a lens for me to try to understand uh, this local civic and state interaction. It was a lens by which to understand how 1989, which no one locally expected, happened in some way so seamlessly and then with such continuities. And the bowling alley became an unexpected edifice around which I could write this narrative. But none of this was self-evident from the start. It was something you you stumble into in reading, in talking to people, in getting to know people. And in that sense, just to, to conclude, personal interaction can mean so much in writing a story like this. My landlady, whom I met in 2007 when I was that fellow at the Dubnov Institute in Leipzig, um, became a dear friend, which was a long story because she was not she did not like Westerners when I first met her. Um, she was a, a, an East German um, medical doctor, self-made professional, uh, and ultimately made sure that Western capitalists did not buy her family's um, apartment building that had survived the war where her family had been. She transformed it into a rental house that she managed. She was born 1937, so she's quite elderly, and she still manages part of it as a, as a rental property. That kind of individual and the kinds of stories that really, in many ways, random individual can tell can inspire directions and other conversations that you can't imagine when you just show up in the Bundesarchiv and start working in Berlin. I think that's a great place to end, Andrew. And and thank you so much for being with us. So we've been talking with Professor Andrew Demschuk. He's Associate Professor at American University in Washington, D.C. And his new book is called Bowling for Communism, Urban Ingenuity at the End of East Germany, published by Cornell University Press 2020, editors Emily Andrew. Uh, And um, we've been listening to the New Books Network and New Books in German Studies. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Thanks so much, Andrew, for joining us today. Thank you.